things are never completely similar. And history, after all, is the study of change over time. And so what you're saying is not that you are equating environmental degradation with the torture of African-Americans under slavery, because that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is that if we think of environmental activism today, we can draw some lessons maybe from the ways in which abolitionists fought against the evil of slavery. You're not saying that, and you ought not to say, that somehow this is exactly the same because things are never exactly the same. And the complete violation of human rights that African-Americans suffered under slavery is not exactly the same thing today as the effects maybe of climate change that different communities are experiencing. Those are very different, distinct historical experiences. And I wouldn't draw a parallel there. But what you are trying to say is that in the past, we have fought against entrenched and powerful interests that have upheld evil in various forms. And slavery is certainly one of them. And so why can't we today again take up cudgels against powerful entrenched interests that are basically leading us towards annihilation of the world of all human beings. That's a big thing. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. You've heard me speak on and bring guests or experts in the history of abolition and slavery, particularly in England. I learned about well-known abolitionists like Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce. Manisha Sinha, today's guest, goes into significantly more depth and nuance to movements in North America and beyond. Manisha is the chair of American history at the University of Connecticut and a leading authority in the history of slavery and abolition and civil war and reconstruction. She was born in India and got her PhD at Columbia University, where her dissertation was nominated for the Bancroft Prize. I should also mention that's where I met her as a student. I was an undergrad student when she was a graduate student. This is around 1989 or 90, just to date both of us. She wrote a book, The Counter-Revolution of Slavery, Politics and Ideology in Antebellum, South Carolina, which was named one of the 10 best books on slavery in Politico in 2015 and recently featured in the New York Times 1619 Project. Her multiple award-winning second book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition, was what brought me to her, or back to her for the first time since around 1990. The book was listed for the National Book Award, named the Book of the Week by the Times. It won many awards, as did she. She's also published in, and here's a long list, The Times Literary Supplement, New York Review of Books, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, New York Daily News, Time Magazine, CNN, Boston Globe, Dissent, The Nation, Jacobin, The Huffington Post, and has been interviewed by The Times of London, The New York Times, Smithsonian Magazine, The Boston Globe, The Atlantic, a whole lot of places. She's also appeared on Democracy Now! and John Stewart's The Daily Show, a very funny segment, and many other places on TV, as well as being an advisor and on-screen expert for the Emmy-nominated PBS documentary, The Abolitionists, which I recommend. Among the many new perspectives I've picked up from her are the initiative and importance of the enslaved. I've been mostly focusing on helping us who like flying, air conditioning at the slightest warmth or humidity, and things like that, without concern for people, half of whose countries will be submerged, or the nearly 10 million people who die just breathing air in one year, poisoned by factories making our stuff, helping to see that acting in stewardship not only isn't futile, but is deeply personally rewarding and effective. We have precedent in history. I see from her the importance of connecting with people, helping themselves elsewhere. How can we get their message 
and their experience to us, the users of polluting technology, shareholders in those companies, buyers of the products? How can we help us today see that future historians will see us as we saw the people the abolitionists opposed? How can we help us see the parallels and follow their footsteps? If comparing environmental stewardship with abolition seems a stretch, listen to Manisha. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Manisha Sinha. Manisha, how are you? I'm good. Good to be here. And I contacted you for two reasons. One is that you're my professor. In it must have been, I think we were trying to figure this out before. It was around 1990, 1989, 1990. Right. I was a graduate student at Columbia, but I, I was teaching the, the Western Civ course there. there. Yeah. Right. And I was an undergrad taking your class. And yeah. when last we spoke, there were some, some things that we remembered. So when I was recently discovering abolitionism, I came across your name and recognized it and thought, I'd love to learn more. Mm-hmm. And for a little background, for anyone who's listening for the first time or also for you, my first introduction, besides what I learned in high school a long, long time ago, which was very little, was learning about British abolitionism through Adam Hochschild's book, Bury the Chains, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I, I learned about Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce and the Clapham group, Granville Sharp. And I felt like I was learning a lot. And then I've only just begun your book. Sorry, I haven't gotten, gotten to read much more of it. But I feel like now I'm learning that it's a much richer, more complex tradition, much more active from, I'm picking up that there's a separation that people have looked back and look back and see, but that wasn't quite there. And I wonder if you could help illuminate me of what you brought into your scholarship of of this history. Yes, so that's a really good question because most Americans, when they think about American abolition, they think mainly about the 19th century, about figures like uh, William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. That's the common perception. But actually, abolition has long roots in the 18th century, in what one could call the age of revolution, when you had all these outstanding Quaker abolitionists, some dissenting Protestants, of course, African-Americans themselves, who began really the, the first wave of abolition. And that is so important to understand because, you know, when the North abolishes slavery, it comes at the tail end of that first wave of abolition. And you have this Anglo-American movement, you know, the British story that you referred to, but also an American side to it against the African slave trade. They want to abolish the African slave trade in particular because it had so many instances of, you know, egregious cases of torture. And so the slave trade is something that few people are willing to defend Uh, even though many are defending slavery already at that time. So we have to look at that early period in the 18th century to look at the way in which the slave trade is abolished and where you have the sort of first emancipation laws being put into place in the northern states of the United States, and you end up with a nation that is half slave and half free. So you started even earlier than... Then, I mean, your first characterization was of slaves themselves in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came to me was, I also want to give some greater context of that I'm working on the environment and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I was initially drawing a parallel that 
I, I don't think I was the first one to do this, but to, between working for abolition of slavery and working to against pollution and fossil fuels, and I saw a parallel between we characterize today we see, we tend to characterize ourselves as victims of pollution that we're going to suffer of of giant storms and sea level rise and things like that. And I started seeing the parallel as closer. We're more like the absentee landlords in England who are far away from what was happening and could have benefited from, there were some who could have benefited from it and chose not to. And so this is, I'm trying to see to what extent this parallel still works or to what extent it could be, it's not as strong as I thought, or might be even stronger than I thought. And to what extent did these British in the late 17th century, 1700s come out of nowhere? Being from Philadelphia, I keep reading about Germantown. Having grown up in Germantown, I keep hearing about Quakers in Germantown. I keep thinking about, oh, this is really close to home. But that's an aside. And that's the context that is driving me, is to what extent can I learn from this, from this history? How does it bear on, on today's world in this context? Did it start in the Americas, in, in, in North America, pre-United States, British America? So a lot of people are objecting to slavery from the moment it originates. And you're right to draw attention to, you know, people of African descent themselves who, who sort of rebelled against slavery in ships or even in the West Coast of Africa, where they formed runaway communities of, of enslaved people. So there's African participation in the slave trade, but there's also resistance against it. But going back to your earlier question about the analogy between fighting against slavery and today fighting against uh, environmental pollution. And I, I kind of thought it was really interesting what you talked about, about how we benefit from, you know, the fossil fuel industry, for instance, and how the people feeling the worst effects of climate change are probably far off in third world countries, though we ourselves are experiencing it you know, within our country too. It's pretty similar to what happened with slavery, especially in the in the British context, where people were benefiting from slave-grown sugar and cotton and tobacco and rice. And, you know, all these items of export were central to the rise of the early modern economy. And yet they a lot of people were also coming to realize that there was something wrong with slavery. And you had all kinds of movements in Britain itself to sort of boycott slave-grown produce. And, and women actually were very much at the forefront of that movement, where they were urging people not to use sugar in their tea grown from, uh, from slave labor. And that happened even in the North, where a lot of people uh, decried the sort of alliance between what they called the Lords of the Loom, uh, the New England cotton textile factories, and the Lords of the Lash, Southern slaveholders who produced the raw cotton that fed those factories. And if you look at, you know, something like the fossil fuel industry, I think the environmental movement has to do something that the abolition movement did, which is to make the average citizen uncomfortable with being complicit in environmental degradation, because we all are, Right. I think at one point, there has to be a shift, both in terms of policy, but also in terms of of our own individual choices, you know, how we are going to create, create a more sustainable society. You know, you mentioned how you 
you take it upon yourself when you go for walks to to clear clear up trash even right mm-hmm. and i thought oh my god this reminds me of individual abolitionists who sometimes individually said well i'm just not going to wear any slave grown cotton so mm-hmm. that meant i'm not going to wear most of the clothes that have been produced at that time and i'm going to consciously sort of individually make a choice so i think the abolition movement like the environmental movement probably worked at various levels at a question of individual moral objection to what is happening but also at the level of changing government policy because in the end as garrison pointed out we have to do that you know individual choices is well and good but at one point you have to figure out how the country itself divests itself from slave labor in those in the in that time and maybe now from being dependent on fossil fuels and we've gone so you know we've gone behind with those uh issues hopefully you know with a new administration we we'll have some action uh on climate change and some action on getting back some environmental regulations and controls well i hope to make that a lot of action <laughs> and to play a role in that and and to make it a a rewarding joyful experience not a burdensome experience mm-hmm. i think you made this distinction i i want to make this distinction that i there's my personal actions of picking up garbage mm-hmm. or not buying packaged food and that is not leadership that is just living by my values on the other hand i th- i think it's very difficult to lead if you don't live by your values mm-hmm. and so i'm glad to hear that this historical precedent the jump from personal behavior or the early beginnings of saying there's something wrong with slavery there's something wrong with and you connect slavery with with christianity with capitalism and so it's it's much more but to jump from there to federal law was that easy or hard or long or short or was there a lot of resistance there was a lot of resistance it was a long struggle and i think again the environmental movement can take a page from the abolitionist struggle because slavery was so central to the nation's political economy indeed to the world market you know to the rise of early capitalism historians now argue it was a really tough slog to get people to start taking action against the enslavement of people of african descent because it was just too profitable you know slaveholders would boast cotton is king because they knew that the value of cotton exported from the united states exceeded the value of all other items of exports now historians debate the extent to which slavery plays a role in the rise of early modern capitalism but it is clear that it had a role right you can keep debating you know what factor was more important but most historians now acknowledge that slavery clearly had a role and and most slaveholders understood that they really were pretty arrogant about how they saw slavery uh, they saw it as a profitable thing they protected it through legislation today the same thing happens with fossil fuel industry you know they have lobbyists they protect their interests it's very profitable and it's really difficult to get people to move away in something that they're so invested in financially right and so i think it is really important for us to work at the level of policy because this is too big a question you know 
we can try what abolitionists initially tried, what they called moral suasion, right? Persuade people that this is wrong individually, change each individual conscience. Uh, but they kind of ran against a roadblock when it came to slaveholders who refused to be persuaded and in fact ended up in a full-scale assault on civil liberties in American democracy in order to actually defend their slave interests. So they were not being reasonable and they were not going to be persuaded. Uh, and in the end, you needed government regulation. So abolition started petitioning the federal government. Okay, at least restrict slavery in the District of Columbia where the federal government has the power to do that. Or get rid of the domestic slave trade now. We've gotten rid of the African slave trade. Let's get rid of the domestic slave trade. Uh, start passing laws that would either regulate or at least point towards the end of slavery, prevent its spread to the Western territory. Similar things to what the environmental movement is saying now, decrease our dependency on fossil fuel to ultimately we completely get rid of it, right? The abolitionists in the end said, you know, we are just not gonna compromise anymore with slaveholders. They're not listening. We want the immediate abolition of slavery. And that did happen, you know, of course, during the Civil War. Uh, it took a war for, for that goal to be reached. But I know of many environmentalists today who are now giving up on gradualist means and are saying, you know, the emergency is already here. And if we don't go to zero emissions by, you know, such and such year, we are already on a path to self-annihilation. So, you know, there, there are lots of parallels there that I can see. I mean, I discovered the parallels, but I didn't make them up. Like, this is not new, right? What I've found. Well, you know, a lot of activists, when my book came out in 2016, there were a lot of activists in different spheres who picked up on it. More uh, people who are struggling against systemic racism and mass incarceration. And of course, there's a whole story there with environmental racism in this country where poor and black communities and communities of color get completely dumped on with pollution, but also something like, you know, think of the water crisis in, in Flint with those lead, lead pipes. So there were a lot of contemporary activists who sort of got interested in, in the book because they see abolition as the sort of archetypical radical social movement on from which they can learn and from which they can use, you know, different ideas and tactics for their particular cause or movement. So that that was that came as a surprise. I thought only historians would read my book, but in fact got picked up outside academia in very interesting ways. Have you heard what happened when they brought this up? And the reason I ask is that I get a lot, when I try to draw parallels, a lot of people say, look, Josh, there are some things you just don't touch. Generally, it's slavery and the Holocaust. is like, do not draw parallels to these things. These are unmitigated evils. And if you, everyone wants to connect with it and it's never justified and you're just going to undermine your own efforts if you do that. You know a fair amount about slavery. Is that fair or is it is there a lot of inspiration to draw? So you know, you know, things are never completely similar. And history after all is the study of change over time. And so what you're saying is not that you are equating environmental degradation with the torture of African Americans under slavery. 
because that's not what you're saying, right? What, what you're saying is that if we think of environmental activism today, we can draw some lessons maybe from the ways in which abolitionists fought against the evil of slavery, right? You're not saying that, and you ought not to say, that somehow this is exactly the same because things are never exactly the same. And, you know, the the sort of complete violation of human rights that African-Americans suffered under slavery is not exactly the same thing today as, you know, the, the effects maybe of, of climate change that different communities are experiencing. Those are very different, distinct historical experiences, and I wouldn't draw a parallel there. But what you are trying to say is that in the past, we have fought against entrenched and powerful interests that have upheld evil in in various forms, right? And slavery is certainly one of them. And so why can't we today again take up cudgels against powerful entrenched interests that are basically leading us towards annihilation of the world and, and you know, of, of, of all human beings. So that's a big thing. You know, that's not a small thing. So I think it's legitimate to, to draw lessons from history without saying, oh, this is exactly the way we are experiencing it, because that's ahistorical. That's obviously not true. You know, I think most historians would say that, you know, we can learn from the past to build a better future, right? Without being too didactic about it. No one says that, oh, this is exactly the same. We might draw connections. We might see the legacies of certain kinds of activism. Uh, and I think that's the way to do it rather than say, oh, this is this is exactly the same because it never is. I'll have to re-listen to that a few times to get the nuances down. All, well, it's also... Some people tell me there's like build a fence around it and just don't get too close. Even if it's, even if there are nuances to draw there, some people are just going to say, uh, yeah, I'm concerned that some people with a very loud voices might be like, Josh, just don't, well, I, I can't really quote them. I don't really know exactly what they're, what they're saying, but I, I agree with you. Although it's glad, I'm glad to hear from someone who's much more knowledgeable about it than I am. Yeah. You know, you're not saying, or you ought not to say that you experience environmental degradation the same way, let's say, an enslaved person suffered the tortures of slavery. That would be a no-no. And I think maybe that's what they're warning you against. But if you say, look, I can study activists against slavery, black and white men and women, and the way they overcame some pretty powerful interests and, and draw some lessons from that, for my own activism against environmental pollution and climate change, that's perfectly legitimate. The comparison from my personal experience would be more to the abolitionists of landowners across an ocean who aren't seeing it themselves, but choose to say, this system, I'm participating in it, and that, or I have, and I could, but I will not, even if everyone around me does. Well, you know, again, it's not so simple in the sense that even in Britain, abolitionists had to fight against what was known then as the West India interests, because all the British plantations were in the West Indies, right? All the slave. 
and and they had a very powerful lobby in parliament that prevented uh, any change or any anti-slavery laws being passed. Even the struggle to abolish the slave trade, you know, Clarkson and Wilberforce and all the Olaudha Equiano, Afro-British abolitionists, it was a long, you know, struggle that that lasted for decades. So I think it is really important to, to remember that it was not the vested interests who said, oh, this is bad and I'm giving it up. In fact, most of them were quite happy to carry on. And most abolitionists tended to be, you know, either like Clarkson, pretty humble origins himself, and very invested in speaking up for the downtrodden oppressed everywhere, you know. He empathized not just with the enslaved, but the the sailors, the British sailors who were forced to work in these slave trading ships. He empathized with everyone. I think Adam Hochschild's book actually does a great job of, of showing all that. So these people were had to fight against entrenched interests in their own country uh, and had to convince the average British citizen that what seems to be in the national interest, or at least what that's what the, the, the people in power are arguing, that this is in the interests of empire, this is for our prosperity, that there's something morally abhorrent about that. Uh, and to make them realize that it was not just the abolitionists, but but it was also African-Americans. You had these you know, spectacular instances of rebellion in the British colonies in the 1820s and 1830s that were very brutally put down by colonial authorities. And that also opened people's eyes to the ways in which people were being treated. And so it, it was a long agitation around these subjects. And even when emancipation came, it came not with compensation to enslaved people, oh my God. but to yes. slaveholders, Yeah, right? So the abolitionists are saying, look, if anyone deserves compensation, it's enslaved people. But the way the British state sort of uh, legislates abolition, they make sure that they take care of those entrenched interests. So even when they have abolition and it's being opposed by slaveholders, they compensate them and they have apprenticeship schemes that allow them to use black labor, you know, for a long time before there's another agitation to get rid of that and its abuses. So it's not so simple. And the abolitionists were always saying, we refuse to, we refuse to compromise uh, with these interests that we need to have a real abolition uh, without, you know, and the legacies still live on in Britain today, right? You know, all these people who, whose families actually have benefited from the huge amounts of compensation that the British state gave out to former slaveholders. Yeah, I was looking at uh, some documentaries on, online of just showing the land, the houses, the, mm-hmm. where they still live and where it came from. Yeah. Universities, the countryside, factories. I mean, every place you dig deep, you find slavery. If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. 
Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. You talked about the rebellions and that role. And if I'm like the abolitionists in England, I had not really thought about the slave narrative and bringing in the voice from this would, the counterpart today would be us here connecting with the Philippines or Indonesia or Southeast Asia, where a lot of our garbage is going or that we're breathing this air that, you know, per capita, we're polluting much more. And what I'm struggling with is, is asking if, is there a parallel to be drawn between slaves then and people who are living in our pollution today, whose lives are cut short by decades Every day in every newspaper, there's more about the disease, the early deaths, the birth defects. Mm -hmm. And these seem to me, is that parallel? Do you see, how much of a parallel do you see there? So, you know, slavery may have been abolished, but the exploitation of human beings, uh, whether it's through their labor or whether it's through, you know, trafficking and really bad conditions that are imposed on them uh, by wealthier countries. I mean, I just read today that the more rich countries are refusing to lead uh, poorer countries led by South Africa and India to produce cheaper versions of the COVID vaccine. They're refusing to give up the patents. So, you know, that kind of Human exploitation, we we haven't gotten rid of it. And a lot of people today draw parallels. They call it modern day slavery. They draw parallels between human trafficking and enslavement. And sometimes those things are somewhat simplistic, right? Because they're not the same. As I said, history rarely repeats in exactly the same way. But it is true that slavery represented one of the most egregious forms of exploitation of human beings. And that kind of exploitation has not ended. Whether we are polluting their waters or polluting those countries or using uh, cheap driven labor the way slave labor was used for our own comforts, that sometimes we don't realize that our everyday comforts are dependent on extreme exploitations of different groups of people all over the world. And, um, you know, that is something that I think is similar, because if you think of the exploitation of Africans in the new world, in the in the plantations of the new world, uh, in the mines in Latin America and, you know, in all different ways, that was very much part of modernity. It was not as if it was some kind of archaic, barbaric labor system that we simply got rid of. In fact, it was those systems that gave rise to modern comforts and world markets in certain goods. And it's similar today, you know, the world market is dependent on exploiting labor, cheap labor. And many times, you know, we we take those resources, we take those goods, and then we throw our rubbish back at them. So it's like a double whammy, you know, and I think it is unfortunate So in that sense, yes, you know, human exploitation has not ended. Exploiting people, exploiting the environment. And abolitionists, as I think I told you in our previous conversation, uh, made a connection between 
the pollution of the of early industrialization in Britain with uh, the exploitation of black people. So John Woolman, a Quaker abolitionist who fought against, you know, environmental degradation, but also against abuse of animals, cruelty to animals, but also against slavery, he made all those connections. And he said, you know, it's part of the same mindset that does these things. I'm glad he said that because it, it rings true with, as I do more, what I said earlier was a matter of integrity of, you know, separating leadership from personal action, but this personal transformation, each, each step I take leads to the next step, leads me to see something that wasn't in my horizons before. And, and it keeps coming back to what you just said. Like you just keep seeing these connections between things. I've been struggling to, not struggling, to what extent do I distinguish? So you used exploitation for both, which maybe is a fair way to do it. Of It's one thing to hold a whip in your hand and whip someone. It's another thing to turn on an air conditioner when it's hot out, but I'm 10,000 miles away from someone who's going to be breathing that air. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way I've thought about it mostly is that most people weren't actually holding the whip back then. We think of that because that's what we see and, and, and think about, but most people were far away and they're just buying the cotton. And to that extent, most of our side of the people who are benefiting from the system generally are, that's very similar. Now, for someone who is on the receiving end of a whip, versus someone who's on the receiving end of pollution that was emitted 10,000 miles away, or actually I should be more explicit, maybe the pollution was emitted right there, but the decision to build the power plant or to build the factory was made in a boardroom over here. I guess they're both exploited and that one was through a whip, the other was through a decision that, well, a little bit, you know, a little dioxin isn't that bad. Yeah. But I think that's why people misunderstand the abolition movement. They A lot of the history of abolition before I wrote my book was, oh, they were criticizing exploitation taking way up there. You know, they were blind to the problems of their own society. And that's simply not true. You know, abolitionists made those connections. They actually criticized, you know, those textile magnates. Uh, they criticized those people who benefited from shipping cotton in New York uh, or trading in cotton, they, they saw those connections and they said there's something wrong that our entire, that this is a system that everyone's benefiting from. It's not just the person holding the whip. It's not just the overseer or the slaveholder, but we are all complicit. And they kept saying that to most Northerners. So in that sense, yes. By any chance did they present an alternative what if we didn't have that? Well, they all talked about free labor. And it was, you know, free labor ideology in the 19th century was was a little amorphous because it could mean that you are an independent, you know, owner of a shop, a master craftsman. You are a farmer who owns his own land and, and farms that or you're a wage worker, which was becoming increasingly the norm in the North. But that was something that was really contested, the rise of wage labor. A lot of people saw it as a dependent situation, very similar or similar to that of slavery. They called it wage slavery, in fact, because they thought that, oh, we are no longer independent citizens. We are dependent on an employer for our livelihood. And a lot of people said, we have to abolish wage slavery. And abolitionists said, well, yes, that maybe that's bad, but you can't compare it to real slavery, which is even worse than wage labor. So there was some tension 
between the labor movement and the abolition movement. I think it's been overdone by previous historians. Now we are seeing that there was a conversation actually going on between the early labor movement and uh, the abolitionists about the problem of uh, exploiting any labor. And abolitionists saw slavery as the most extreme form of exploiting labor, right? Where they didn't get any fruits of their labor, not even a wage. And so, you know, those connections are something that I looked at much more than previous historians who always said, oh, this was just a relationship of antagonism. Uh, And it really wasn't. There was a conversation going on. The 19th century is a time when all kinds of radical ideas about how we should actually reform society, get rid of human slavery, have land reform, get rid of poverty, uh, all those. This is the rise of utopian socialism. By the 1840s, you have you know, Marx writing the Communist Manifesto. Um, You know, the 19th century is a time when a lot of radicals of all sorts, uh, including feminists, are talking about all these different things. And I found the abolitionists really interesting because they were not just focused uh, in fighting against slavery. Their interests overlapped with a lot of these other radical social movements, you know, feminism, pacifism, utopian socialism, they are thinking about and talking about solutions to entrenched problems in their own society. So it's not just like this single focus on slavery that many historians caricatured them as. They paint much of a picture of what that world would be like. Uh, the reason I ask is that I'm the more that I do this, the more that I realize that the less that I use fossil fuels mm-hmm. and the less that I pollute, what I expected was the less of the modern world I would get, the less I'd get to see family, the less income I would have. Mm-hmm. And my actual experience is the more time I spend with family, the more I connect with my community, the more money I save. And when I talk to people who are, you know, I had a, a single mom from a food desert on the show and she invited me up to the Bronx to teach how to cook the way that I do because most people think, oh, you live in the Greenwich Village. You have this farmer's market right there. You know, most people can't do that. Well, if they don't know how they can't, but she was like, you know, you planted the seed to help us figure this out. And it's more accessible is what I'm getting at. And it's a picture that people aren't really that open to hearing, but I think they will with more, especially as more people do it. Right. Did, were people able to say what a world without slavery would be like? Because I would imagine the people with power are thinking, well, we're going to lose a lot of power. And I think this is the quote that I remember from college from you, mm-hmm. not about slavery, but that I would guess that after things worked out, I mean, after a period of adjustment, that people would be more, that a a non-slave labor society would be better for everyone. I mean, maybe there'd be an upper crust if they could shut down their conscience and not look at the the exploited people as humans. Mm -hmm. Materially speaking, I guess they they might lose a little bit, but outside of, of a very small number at the very top economically, I would imagine it would be better for everyone. As, as people are working because they want to. And if, is that a picture that they, that came out or is that me looking back and guessing? Well, they did try to form these sort of alternative communities, which, which were really interesting. These utopian socialist communities, there were some 
abolitionist communities too. And they experimented with a whole range of stuff, you know. Of course, temperance was a big thing, teetotaling, not having alcohol. But they also experimented with, you know, Graham crackers. Sylvester Graham and his Graham crackers were were very popular uh, with vegetarianism, with, you know, all the things that we think are fairly modern. But they also experimented with different familial sort of arrangements, uh, more kind of a commune kind of living. Uh, some of these experiments just sort of disintegrated uh, amidst a scandal and corruption, but but a lot of them were somewhat successful and, and different. And they, they tried to create these kind of model communities uh, that would point a different way of living. They were not all very successful, but at least they tried to imagine a different future. So yes, they did. They did do that, and you know, you had the transcendentalist communities. You had the the sort of quote free love communities later on. You had anarchist communities. You had some communities here that were pacifist communities. So you know, you could still go up to Northampton today in Massachusetts and read about and see the history of the the abolitionist utopian community there that was actually run by Garrison's brother-in-law and in which uh, Sojourner Truth lived for some time. So it was open to African-Americans too. Were they influential? Yeah, there were fugitive slaves who joined that community too. And there was David Ruggles, who was a, a Black abolitionist in New York City, who was very active in the Vigilance Committee uh, to rescue fugitive slaves, but who practices so-called water cure there in Northampton. And, um, you know, he was seen as somewhat of a, of a doctor too, uh, practicing this water cure. He steadily went blind uh, and was unable to continue on his own and he joined this community. But yeah, abolitionists did experiment in all, all sorts of things. And, you know, I guess today too, we are becoming more conscious of many of these ideas. You know, I know vegetarianism has been such a central part of Indian culture, for instance, and is far more prevalent there than, but now increasingly I see that in the US it's become far more popular than when I first came here in the 80s and 90s when I was teaching at Columbia. It's 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 taken on a much bigger, you know, role in in. in yeah. That's actually about around then is when I last ate meat, actually. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a big meat eater. I mean, I'll eat fish and stuff like that sometimes, but but somehow a whole lot of red meat I find. And it could be just my Indian upbringing that makes me a little, you know, I just can't eat that. I mean, I can't see meat as a big, and, and then you lose your, your uh, yeah. And if you think about it, you think of the consumption of beef and 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 pollution. You know, there's a direct connection there too, uh, in terms oh, yeah. of the decimation of forests and lands, mainly to feed the first world uh, hamburgers, I guess, or whatever. But uh, you know, these are all connected. Yeah, and I can't help but add that the artificial fertilizer and what that does, and lots mm-hmm. of other things. Absolutely. I want to ask one more question about. The early early capitalism, because of course, Wealth of Nations was around then. Mm-hmm. And, and then I want to ask some questions about the publishing of the book. But something that I've wondered is, 
especially after reading, I don't know if you've read uh, Industrial Strength Denial by Barbara Fries. And she talks about how the, the separation between, how the corporation allows you to separate, uh, say you, the consumer, from upstream how the how the stuff is done. And today there's a lot of denialism of, you know, what the fossil fuels have done. You know, they obfuscate and they deny and they say, well, we have to do more research. And she traces it back to before that it was it was tobacco and before that it was other things and 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 before that it was slavery. Mm-hmm. And I wonder to what extent, do you know if the rise of the corporation as something that I mean, it provides limited liability, but it also provides, like, from a media perspective, protection to say, oh, we don't know. Right. And was that connected with the slave trade? I don't know if it was or not. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, if you think of the rise of the early modern world and early capitalism, that's precisely it. You know, they're integrating the entire world, and there's a lot of exploitation and war and extermination of people's going on, but people can be innocent, right? Because I'm not directly involved in it, even though I am partaking of the comforts coming out of all that. And I think what the abolitionists did was they broke that that innocence and that the notion that somehow uh, people are not complicit. And they insisted that the British public realize, or in the United States that Northerners realize that this system is something that they were benefiting from uh, and that th- that it was a system of oppression that did not really gel with the values they claimed to believe in. But I think capitalism does that, you know, the creation of a world market. It's slavery and it's also imperialism. If you think of the conquest of the rest of the world by Europe, it's really driven by the search for new raw materials, new resources in order to produce more goods for the world market, right? So all this is connected and having it at a distance, it was easy for Britain to forget empire and pretend to be this lovely liberal political space, which it wasn't even for the working classes within Britain. And and certainly, you know, you could say that closer to home, there were a lot of exploitations going on, including of different regions in the British Isles itself. But this notion of distance and and playing innocent is something that I think the structures of capitalism and the world market allow us to do. So it evolved in order to further that. Mm-hmm. Would it, then it also, have, I don't know to what extent, I would have guessed that the average European, especially Northern European prior to slavery, wouldn't know or care about Africans at all. And then at some point, and here's my thoughts, and tell me if I'm off. Or, and then once you have slavery and it's cruelty, then I would guess that a racism would emerge from that. Or augment. To what extent did slavery drive racism versus racism driving slavery? I imagine they drove each other. Yeah, that's the, the famous debate amongst uh, historians, the, the so-called chicken and egg debate over slavery and racism, and clearly Europeans did have contact with Africa before, but it was limited, it was different, you know, the ancient world, it could be through Christianity, in the in the Middle Ages, the Arabs were the kind of middlemen because they conquered Southern Europe and Northern Africa, right? Uh, so there was knowledge of our, and we have instances 
of uh, individual Africans in Europe. But in the early modern world, when you increasingly have Black people associated with slavery, right, rather than any other ethnic group, you do have the rise of systemic racial ideologies that say, oh, these people are inherently inferior, that they are inherently, you know, and you have the, this is the same time and you have the rise of, you know, the so-called early science of man, where they're grading human populations with invariably Europeans are on top and Africans are at the bottom. And so they're all these sort of, this sort of intellectual scaffolding of racism that comes about coincidentally at the same time with the enslavement of Africans and the takeoff of the Atlantic slave trade in this period. So it goes hand in hand. And Black people are protesting that. This, uh, you know, I write in my book about some of these Africans who end up in Europe somehow and either acquire education there, participate in the intellectual culture and start challenging these ideas. So with the rise of racism, you also have the rise of anti-racism. A lot of it is coming from Black people themselves, but then some of it gets adopted by abolitionists because they realize that one of the biggest defenses of slavery are these uh, sort of inherently racist ideas about uh, African people as being somehow peculiarly suited to, to enslavement. There's one last thing I want to ask, and, and I hope that after I get to read more of your book to ask more, uh, to bring you on a second time, because I, I'm, every now and then you would say something, I was like, I felt like the, there's like the yarn and the sweater is just coming unraveled. And I, I want to keep pulling and see what's left uh, and then reconstruct from that. You mentioned that you thought only historians would read it, but the awards and the coverage, you, this book is did it find much bigger attention than you expected? And how was that? It did, you know, even my my friends and mentors and people who supported me kept saying, oh, this big book is too big and it's too sprawling and it's doing too many things and no one's going to read it. And I was just determined to do it because I was so unhappy at this way in which the history of abolition had been written. And then in February 2016, when it was published, it got a review in the New York Times book review. And that's what, you know, and it was done by a famous historian of slavery, Ira Berlin, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But that really, I think, was one of the first reviews of the book. And it was in the mainstream press. I didn't expect it. But my... I think I had an inkling that maybe that would happen because when I submitted the entire manuscript to my publishers, Yale University Press, and they published it in the commercial side, somehow the people who are not experts, right? Like the people involved in production or the copy editor who was over 90 and had been copy editing for the press for God knows how many years, they're always saying, wow, we really enjoyed reading this book. So I was like, wait a minute, it is reaching people because those people are not professional historians. In fact, most of the professional historians were like, oh my God, the book is too big and no one's going to read it. And so then I noticed that it just, then it got reviewed everywhere. The Wall Street Journal, the Time Literary Supplement, New York Review of Books. I mean, just like all the major places that I could, that happened later. 
in the summer of that year, it got longlisted for the National Book Award for nonfiction. And I think that was a really tipping point when it became a crossover book and they ran out of the hardcovers and they, they had to prepone, if I can make up a word, the publication of the paperbacks from, uh, I think it was going to be February the following year, 2017, but they already had to start doing that uh, in December. So I think it really, it really took off somehow. And, and then, of course, it was, it was a very troubling time because the book was also written, at, most of it was written at a very hopeful time during the two terms of the Obama presidency. And then came, you know, this uh, shock of the 2016 presidential elections and things just kept getting worse after that. And uh, the book just kept a steady stream and people seemed to be interested. You know, I was, I'm still doing book talks, which is amazing because it's been four years since it was published. So I think I was really happy with the backing I got from my press and and the fact that they really believed in the book. I uh, did the Diane Reem show uh, also. John Stewart? John Stewart was before the book came out. Oh, okay. Right? But I, I had written a piece on abolition in a book, which just from the way he was talking, I felt either he or one of his handlers had read that piece. Uh, but I was working on the abolition book when I was on the John Stewart show, which was fun. But yeah, it was... It did take off and that. And I started writing more for for a broader audience even before the book came out. I think that also helped. I wrote a lot for the New York Times disunion piece on the coming of the Civil War. My first book is on pro-slavery ideology and states' rights theory in the secession movement in the South. So I studied slaveholders before I studied abolitionists. So uh, I did start writing a lot for a broader audience after... Uh, President Obama's historic run. Around 2008 is when I started writing for for broader audiences. And I think that helped too. Well, I would love to keep asking more. As much as it pains me to say it, I want to respect your time. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you. I've got to, I notice it's eight o'clock and I've got to go. But but sure, you know, know, just be in touch. Be happy to talk again. I should plow through the book. (laughs) And I hope to apply the book to today and breathe life that use it to breathe life to where we could use it. Yeah. Well, Manisha Sinha, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. As I'm recording these words, this nation is recovering from Trump supporters acting in revolt and insurrection. Manisha's perspective on America's history during Reconstruction is as relevant today as ever. I recommend following her perspectives. She's in the news these days. What's happening now is historic, but with parallels in our history. We can learn from the past to make a better future, as she said in this episode. Hearing the view of someone who knows slavery and relevant activism backward and forward, and has looked thoughtfully at activism today around the environment, that she sees learning from them as more than just legitimate, but important. She came back many times to the entrenched interests then and now, and how to influence them. That's my intent, to change those interests. That is, to change the system, so entrenched right now. Through her, I started learning more about Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, and American abolitionists a generation or two later than the British. I enjoyed seeing her on the PBS American Experience documentary, The Abolitionists, which covered them and I recommend. There's a lot of nuance, but a lot of value in learning from similar movements. You may know more about abolition than I do. Maybe I'm learning remedially, but I recommend looking up that history and the people involved with it to learn from them, to act today in their legacy. 
How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.